Welcome to the Mac PFD Sparkle podcast. This is Ruth Chen, and in the Sparkle subseries, we'll bring you shorter segments released in between our longer Spark episodes. We'll have new and exciting interviews with professionals from across the world, helping you to achieve your personal and professional goals as a healthcare educator, researcher, leader, or practitioner at any stage of your career. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this episode of the Mac PFD Sparkle Podcast. Today, Drs. Teresa Chan and Joan Sargent discuss the R2C2 model of feedback and assessment. Dr. Sargent reflects on multi-source feedback for health professional learners. In this interview, we learn about providing feedback in a way that learners will accept and incorporate to produce real change in their own practice. Hello, everyone. This is Teresa Chan, and I'm here with a very special guest, Dr. Joan Sargent. She is a legend in Canadian faculty development and someone who has done some amazing work over really many years of her career. She is now a professor post-retirement. That's a status at Dalhousie University, and she still engages in scholarship. I still see her publishing papers, the current center, so I know she's still very active, but she's also enjoying some level of some retirement life, I'm sure. And she is known to our kind of health professions education zone as someone who's done a lot of work around clinical coaching, specifically with something called the R2C2 model. And not to be confused with Star Wars and R2C2 or C3PO. Clearly, you riffed on that idea a little bit. But, you know, I'm a giant science fiction nerd, so I might drop some Star Wars (laughs) analogies or tidbits throughout just to keep things lively. But Joan, will you say hi to everyone, please? Well, hello, everyone. And Teresa, thanks so much for inviting me. It's pretty exciting to have a conversation about something I'm pretty passionate about. So thank you. Well, thank you for coming on our podcast. So wind back time, right? Like, so again, let's go to episode one of the R2C2 kind of like (laughs) mythology and just get to the basics. How did this idea come about? Like, where did it come from? That's a really good question. And I was actually thinking about it before we got online today. I think, yeah, I really have to do think about where it came from because it's, it's been going on for a long time. Some of you may have heard this story. It began, gosh, about 20 years ago when I was doing some research around multi-source feedback. And actually that was research related to my PhD dissertation. And it was when multi-source feedback had been implemented in Nova Scotia as part of a physician peer review program. And we were conducting a study of it. And so our questions were, you know, what do physicians think of it? And do they use the feedback? And how do they use the feedback? And I guess our big aha moment was that when we were conducting the evaluation, we correlated their responses with, do you agree with your feedback? With another question, you know, will you use this feedback for improvement? Do you accept it? And will you use it for improvement? And lo and behold, what we found for those physicians who receive positive high scores, high multi-source feedback scores, they said, yes, I accept this, you know, I'll use it, it's helpful, it's all a good thing. And those who receive lower multi-source feedback scores said, mm, I'm not so sure about this. I don't know whether I trust it. Mm, I don't think I'm going to accept it. I don't think I'm going to use it. And so coming at it from a continuing professional development perspective, I thought, oh, my goodness. And and our whole team thought, oh, my goodness, this is a bit of a quandary. Here we are thinking that if you give feedback that shows how to get better, that people will just take it on and use it. And so it was really a a wake-up call for us. 
So that was step one. Step two, that what we learned through that work too, is that physicians compared their scores with how they saw themselves, like their own self-assessment. And so that was part of that decision-making process about whether they'd accept it or not. And so that led us then into a series of studies around self-assessment. Like, how do people self-assess? Because we thought if we're going to understand if people are going to take on feedback, we have to understand how they self-assess to start off. And so we did a series of studies on self-assessment, and we asked residents, students, and physicians, you know, how do you self-assess? How do you tell how you're doing? And lo and behold, over all these focus groups and sites and so on and so forth, it boiled down to you have to have feedback (laughs) to know how you're doing, to sort of inform your self-assessment. And so then that led us to another quandary. We'd done earlier work which showed that if feedback didn't contradicted one's self-assessment, they wouldn't take it on. And then we just finished this set of studies saying, well, you need feedback to moderate how you're doing and to use. So then that led us into a third series of study, which led to R2C2. How can we then enable providing feedback in a way that's going to help physicians, students, residents accept it and use it, even when perhaps it is different than how they think they were doing? That was really the question that set us down the R2C2 path. And I'll just sort of stop there and see if you've got a comment, because that may have been more than you were thinking about. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it sounds like you started with an origin story around really just being fascinated by a phenomenon. It sounds like you then developed more expertise in the area and then started realizing and seeing patterns. And so for all those junior faculty members or senior faculty or mid-career faculty who are looking to pivot into a new spot, sometimes the light bulbs just start to ping, 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 ping and go up, right? And it's really nice to hear you reflect on kind of the evolution that it wasn't like you just sat down and had a strap plan for five years. It was very organic. It evolved over time. And it's the observations from your previous study that then power your next one. So I love that inquiry kind of based momentum that you built over the years. You summarized it really nicely, Teresa. And I think the other part, and I think you know this, and so many of our colleagues across the country know this, that it's teamwork. And so it was, you know, working with you know, having terrific people on the team, people from, you know, different backgrounds, different expertise that raised difficult questions as we were going through this path that really contributed to leading us down this path as well. And so then when we got to this point of realizing, well, I guess we're sort of in a conundrum. We have to figure out if we need feedback to sort of help guide and inform our self-assessments. And we know people aren't often keen on accepting feedback, So we went back and did a literature search around what are effective feedback strategies and and what would inform a model. And so then at that time, we used three approaches in particular. One was around humanism, meaning that the intervention needs to be learner-centered, needs to be based on a relationship and trust with an interest in helping people grow. That's the humanistic point of it. The second part of it, the second bucket that we drew on was the work that we've been doing and, you know, Glenn Regeer, Kevin Eben, all kinds of other people around self-assessment and just trying to understand how people come up with their self-perceptions and recognizing that that's, you know, that's where the emotional part of feedback comes in when we receive feedback that conflicts with how we see ourselves. So that was the second sort of informing body behind the model. And then the third one was really moving more into psychology, into behavior change. 
like once you've you know developed that relationship, been able to share feedback, work through and get them to accept it. And then that final piece is how do you develop a plan to help them use it? So it's not just the giving of the feedback. How do you help them change behavior to act on that feedback, whether it's something as simple as, you know, changing their technique for, you know, taking out sutures or whatever, or if it's something, you know, leading a team meeting or whatever it is. And from that, we drew on sort of some of the behavior change work, knowledge translation factors that influence whether or not people will change. A big part was the motivational interviewing. And I'm not sure, you know, I think family physicians and maybe some general internists listening to this understand what that is, but just the notion of that you're really trying to engage the person and help promote their own agency so that they can take on this data, this feedback and go with it and create a plan. So it's not something that's being done to them, that it's also um, you're creating agency within the, the learner or the colleague, whoever you're giving the feedback. Yeah, to. It, it, it has shades of self-regulation, like a lot of the self-determination theory work around, you know, autonomy being really important. But I do see a lot of analogies from other works, such as the uh, Stone and Heen work on thanks for the feedback from the Harvard Business Absolutely. School. They have a fantastic book that's like been, been great to augment because it, it has yeah. more examples. And so I know that for our leadership course I'm running, we, we actually gave that as a book for people to read as well. And then I think it really does bridge over. And I know you recently you've written about this, but it bridges over into a lot of the traditions in simulation around debriefing, right? And so the simulation educators have had this really deep, rich history of, you know, doing a sim and then really saying, okay, this is what I saw. This is, you know, like, what do you think about it? And really working through people's behavioral change. And I think it's fascinating that more recently you've done that collaborative work to pull a bunch of sim educators and feedback people together as a team to really think through that and what that all means. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Because not many people do that silo smashing, right? The bridge building, like a lot of people stay in their silos, stay in their lanes, and then they never realize that there's a great person right next door that's doing really, or down the hall sometimes, that's doing great work. That's a great question. And you know, it literally was, I think it was a came, a came workshop, a came assessment program that I was part of talking about feedback. And Walter Tavares, who I didn't know at all <laughs> before that, was talking about simulation. And, you know, at the break, we just sort of got together and said, you know, we're talking something the same, the same language here. I was talking about the R2C2 model and talking about, you know, observing feedback and coaching. And he was talking about, you know, simulation and observing <laughs> and debriefing. And so that was serendipitous. That's where that paper, that work came from. And then inviting others, a number of others to be part of that paper, both from the feedback world, like Chris Watling and from the sim world like Walter Epic and just bringing the, the thoughts together. However, you're, you know, you're raising a good point, Teresa. That paper, and I'm sure Walter and the others would say the same thing, that paper was a struggle. <laughs> it, took, it took a long time and it took, a, and it took, I'm sure, the first year or 18 months for us just to realize we weren't talking the same language, <laughs> that we were sort of using the same words, but we made it, you know, less nuanced differently and we weren't entirely on the same. So it took a long time for us to realize that we had to sort out our own language and then be really clear about exploring you know, what's the background around feedback, what's the background around debriefing. And I think, you know, as you're raising this question, I think it's work that we could probably, I mean, thinking of myself, probably make more explicit 
so that that for all those who are involved in debriefing, you know, sort of make that link. Oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is pretty close to debriefing because that's you know essentially what we're trying to do through the R2C2 is engage the learner. What did you think is going on? How do you think it went specifically? What would you change? And all those kinds of questions so that it's a partnership. It's not the preceptor um, setting the course. So thanks for that. That's important work. And I hope that others carry it on as well. Yeah. And I think there's really cool things when you're looking across different disciplines and different traditions, right? Even in medical education, like you, like you saw feedback and simulation, they're both doing something very similar. And yet there wasn't all a crosstalk simulation. People have their journals, med ed people have their journals, health yeah. professionals, educators in other disciplines. I'm sure there's nursing professors and we have specialists that are writing in different journals and we just don't necessarily read them all. And so, I mean, I use Twitter myself to get kind of like that conversation going, but I know conferencing when we get back to that. <laughs> in the post-pandemic <laughs> world, it will be a great way to do that network with people. But I think sometimes, honestly, I like to fangirl people and just write them an email if I came across their paper. I use things like Google Scholar, which goes across different disciplines yes. to find things. And yeah, I mean, I think it's really an really inspirational story. That's why I brought it up, because I think it's just a feat of leadership to say, maybe we should have conversations between So speaking of, though, I was thinking of another opportunity where we got to meet up around, you know, how does R2C2 intersect with some of the systems, health systems and clinical work that we do? Do you see this bridging into that kind of like the workplace environments? And how do we take this to those kind of scenarios? Interestingly, and and whether this may be a partial response to your question, as you may know, as well as the R2C2 model, and, and again, the, you know, at the end of this, I can give the website for where we have all the resources so if people aren't familiar with it, they can take a peek if they want to or feel free to, to email me. You know, I love your suggestion. I'm digressing for a sec, but I love your suggestion. If you read somebody's paper or you see somebody's name and wonder what they're up to, do just send them an email. Like so often, yeah, folks are willing to reach out. But as part of the R2C2 uptake, it's been taken by the regulatory authorities in a number of provinces, Nova Scotia being one, Ontario another, Alberta, BC, and the BC gang have just published a lovely paper on academic medicine. I think it was was January, December, about realizing how important the relationship is and relationship-centered feedback, framing R2C2 as relationship-centered feedback. And that how it can enhance physician engagement and they're taking on their feedback. Now to go back to your question about how is this, how is, can it be used in the workplace? In Alberta, through the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Alberta, part of the initiative has been rather than just giving feedback to individual practitioners, giving feedback to teams. So to clinicians who are working together in a team, and it could be with other, you know, with nurse practitioners or pharmacists, it could be an an interprofessional team. And it could be, you know, sort of quality assurance data, quality improvement data, you know, the stats on how their clinic's doing, you know, where where they're doing really well, where perhaps an issue or two is. And so then they've been testing out using the R2C2 model to help them explore that data as a group. And in the same way to get their reactions to it that, you know, did you think you were doing this well? Or did you think you were, is it a surprise that you're not doing well in this particular area? And yeah, it makes us all feel awful when we see we're not doing well. So having that kind of, you know, relationship reaction conversation 
and then using, you know, moving into the two C's, the content. So, you know, what is it that we need to work on in this clinic? And then the next C, the coaching, like, you know, what is it we need to do? Who do we need to help us? You know, what kind of a timeline and all those kinds of things. And it has been tested out, not formally tested as in a published paper, but informally tested in a couple of other departments, hospitals across the country that I've been involved with within the quality improvement world. So how to have a discussion about your performance data or the unit's performance data in a manner that's going to be helpful and productive, inclusive, and end up with an action plan so that we can you know, get over all the lumps and bumps and get to work on what needs to be done. So are those the kinds of things that you were thinking of when you asked my question or were you thinking of something a bit different? Yeah, no, I think it's great because I think that sometimes medical education really emphasizes, you know, undergrad or postgrad and, you know, we do all these things and then all of a sudden someone graduates and then they're wanting feedback. And in fact, I think we're going to be creating people who are desirous of feedback as a routine now with movements like competency-based medical education or the triple C curriculum in family medicine. There's feedback-hungry generation on the rise. And I do think that acknowledging that R2C2 is a model that can, you can carry through your career, you can actually probably transplant it to other realms of your life as well and do it with your academic work, or you can do it with, like, to be honest, your parenting. <laughs> like, it really depends yes. on, you know, like, there's probably different ways that you can go about it, right? Like, not so much you needing the advice for your parenting, but rather using in your parenting with your teenagers, for instance. I know some people have used it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, like I, the yeah. translation I mean, is huge. Yes, because it's sort of rooted in psychology and, and what makes us tick and what makes us relate to someone else and what makes us, what helps us to want to achieve and, and be the best that we can be. That phrase that I just used, be the best that we can be, is a, is a phrase that keeps coming back to my mind you know, whenever I'm doing, you know, workshops around this, around feedback, you know, and I'm sure, Teresa, for you and others listening to this, when we did a workshop on feedback, gosh, it must be six or seven, eight years ago. And it was for program directors at Dow. And one of them spoke up and we were talking about, you know, those difficult feedback conversations. And this one program director said, well, whenever I go into one of these difficult conversations, you know, I always start off with, you know, I know this may be a, a hard conversation for us, but I just want you to know my goal is to make you the best physician that you can be. And whatever it was in the feedback or whatever we say, I just want you to remember that, that my goal is to help you to be the very best. And, you know, to me, that has just stuck with me <laughs> forever because it is just such a, you know, a humanistic, positive kind of thing to say. So that even if it is a difficult conversation, if you can convey that message that you've got their back, you're there for them, and that this is how and you're using the R2C2 model to try and get from that first bit to that plan that they can implement and that you can check in with them on. That alignment is so important, right? Being someone on your side is really important yeah. to understand. They're not going to get you because any criticism will come off badly. But if someone's giving you feedback so you can improve that just that just comes from a different point of view, right? And it does take a little bit of that rapport building. You know, they talk about the therapeutic alliance with yeah. a lot of our- Oh, people, that wonderful right? work. Or their educational alliance is something that people mm -hmm. have translated. It's the same idea, right? Like I'm on your side. I'd like to help you. I know the words I'm going to say are maybe blunt or harsh, but, you know, we're working towards the same end. And maybe like, you know, it doesn't have to be as blunt and harsh either because there's obviously different ways to say the same thing. And so 
I think you just really need to get to know the person that you're trying to give feedback to and give it in a way that's going to be done with compassion, caring when appropriate. And to be honest, depending on who it is, because if it's your teenager, love, <laughs> you might need to, you know, pull out all the slops and just really harness that relational yeah. aspect. You talked, and I wonder if I can just comment on this, Teresa, someone that you're having a relationship with, or I mean, you know, a learning relationship. And you know, what I've learned through this work, and I'm sure you can do it as a clinician, you know, an excellent clinician educator, is that it, and recognizing that it doesn't take a long time to develop that trusting relationship with a learner. And that's, I think, a big thing that I've learned through this research over the years and talking to so many clinician educators, that in a very short time, you can sort of build that relationship, even if the student or the resident is the first day you've ever seen them, that you can convey an interest in them, you know, let them know that you're there for them, that hopefully they have some specific goals, you know what you can offer as their preceptor, and what are we going to pick to work on? And actually on our website, which, as I say, I'll be sharing later on, we've got some videos demonstrating the different phases of R2C2. And, you know, I just encourage folks to just take a peek at the one for the sort of feedback R2C2 in the moment, just for the relationship piece. It's only a two minute video. And the person who plays it is a member of our team who's an internist program director in the U.S., and it's under two minutes. And in under two minutes, she meets a student she's never met before, asks how they're doing, builds that relationship, shows sincere interest in them, finds out what it is they're working on, and together they develop a plan for the day. They're only together you know, for that one day. And I've had other clinician educators look at it and sort of say, wow, I don't do that. You know, I don't, I, I, there's lots of tips there. And I'm sure that many people do, you know, many of those things. But for me, it emphasizes that we can form a relationship with a learner in two minutes. And we could be with a learner for a week or a month and still not have a, a good relationship. Again, because we're perhaps not using those humanistic approaches. And it's, you know, it's hard. For some of us, they come naturally. And for some of us, for some of us they don't. So that video can give a good tip of how to sort of break the ice and move right into relationship and developing a plan for the day. That's a really good point, Joan. Are there any final thoughts you have as we're kind of closing out this podcast? There's something that I'd love to share, and I'll try and do it briefly, because I know I can talk about things for quite some time. And actually, it was the topic of the CAME webinar, which I think I did a couple of weeks ago, which is around, you know, how can we use feedback, feedback, feedback alone, feedback and coaching to help foster learner wellness. And I think this has just struck me over the years as well, perhaps because R2C2 is sort of, you know, grounded in humanism and learner centeredness on one hand. And on the other hand, just with all the stats about depression, stress, loads, even suicide in, in learners and physicians. And so what I, I've worked on for this is trying to really look at you know, what are the, you mentioned early on, self-determination theory. And in self-determination theory, it says that people need to achieve three constructs, three sort of psychological goals in order to feel well and healthy. And one of them is to feel competent, you know, to feel that you can do something and, and that you're achieving it. The second one is, you mentioned autonomy. Agency may now be a better word, but it's that sense of that you have some say you have some control over what's going on. And the third one is relatedness, you know, which we've talked about quite a bit. 
And so I'm really curious now and would love if anyone <laughs> wants to join me in, in sort of studying this in how might we use the R2C2 model, how might we you know, change our, whether we need to change our approach or the way we talk about it as a way of helping preceptors to help prevent stress in their learners, help promote a healthy outlook, be burnout protective, so that it really helps our learners develop positive strategies for carrying on their education and moving into their careers. So that's my final, my final yeah. spiel. Thank you, Teresa. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think there's a lot of work to yet to be done in this domain. So I'm glad that you're reaching out and offering to mentor others because I mean, if any of you are interested in this domain, like hit me up on Twitter or email and I'll get you in touch with Joan because it'd be amazing to work with her. She is a legend, like I said earlier. So this has been awesome. I could talk to you all day, but I think we have to respect the attention spans of our listeners. So maybe we can always set another time to have a conversation. You've had a long and outstanding research career. So maybe bringing you back for another time for an episode about research pearls and kind of like your evolution of your career would be amazing. So thank you. Thanks so much, Teresa. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.